Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies with your speaker, Chris McCann. If you'd like more information or to hear more studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now, with your evening Bible study, here's Chris McCann. Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Revelation. Tonight is study number 36 of Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 13 and 14. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now, uh, I'm going to just make a couple of uh, final comments about verse 13 before we move on into verse 14. And verse 14 is also, in a way, a transition verse, even though we have been talking about Judgment Day and and God has been emphasizing the presence of the true believers in the world during the time of judgment. Yet, once we get into verse 14, from verse 14 through the end of the chapter, in verse 20, the focus shifts to picturing Judgment Day as the final harvest, the harvest at the end of the world. And... Well, we'll, we'll see the great emphasis that the Lord puts upon harvest in association with Judgment Day in those verses. And, of course, what's fascinating is that we know that Judgment Day began, and we know this from other scripture, other parts of the Bible, on May 21, 2011. And in the coming passage in verse 20, we're going to read of a number, 1600 furlongs, that the Bible gives us allowance to understand is 1600 days, and when we put that number together as as uh, uh, the duration of Judgment Day, 1600 days, a very uh, likely time period for the entire period of God's judgment, beginning on May 21, 2011, when we put it with the 8,400 days of the Great Tribulation, it forms 10,000 overall days. But also, if if we do understand it as 1,600 days from May 21, 2011, the 1,600th day is October 7, 2015, and that day happens to be the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, but also the last day of the Feast of Ingathering, or Harvest. And and that's what's amazing, is that God is describing Judgment Day as a time of harvest in those verses. Then he gives us a number that fits so perfectly with 8,400 to form a complete number of 10,000, pointing to the completeness of Judgment and also a number that happens to fall on the very last day of harvest, which would also complete the final harvest of judgment that that God 
uh, is undertaking at the end of the world. But uh, anyway, we're uh, still in verse 13, and the second part of the verse says, Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And we saw how this has to do with the labors of the people of God, um, first of all, during the church age, when the Lord's people ministered the gospel uh, in the churches, through the churches, and God brought in the first fruits. Exodus 23.16 speaks of the time of harvest and the first fruits of thy labors. And, and so... Uh, that task was completed and finished, and then God gave his people a second task during the little season of the latter rain, in which the great multitude would be saved out of great tribulation, and they would be brought in during the final harvest. They, they are the fruit that is in view with that final feast of ingathering. Well, now God says they may rest or everyone cease from their labors in the field. Their first fruits are already completed. Now the great multitude that, uh, brought in as the last fruits also are completed. The labor in the field of harvest, the overall harvest of the early and latter rain, the husband and waited for those rains until he would cease to be long-suffering and patient with the unsaved of the world. They're finished. Now it's judgment day. God, the husbandman, no longer is is patiently putting up with the sins of mankind, but he actively, in his wrath, shuts the door of heaven, and, and that is a an act of anger, of fury, of punishment to all the wicked of the world. And and at the same time, God is addressing his workers, and he says that you will rest or cease from your labors, and their works do follow them. And the works, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, where God likens those that involve themselves in the work of the gospel. As it says in, in 1 Corinthians 3.8, I think it was, we are laborers together with God. As God sent forth his word into the world, how did he do that? But through his people. We were the messengers that carried forth the word of God, and through that word, God found his elect and saved his elect and and so forth and and those that became saved were our works that first corinthians 3 goes on to speak of and let me just mention this again in first corinthians 3 we'll read it again it says in verse 13 every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he is built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. And 
obviously, if God's going to put the fire to every man's work, that means he's putting the fire to the good, the saved, as well as the bad, the unsaved. He's putting the fire to all, and enduring the fire will declare, it will reveal which work is which. Which is worthwhile, gold, silver, precious stones, the truly saved, which um, has no value, wood, hay, stubble that is burned in the fire, consumed. It's the work that endures. And in order for the work to endure, it must be put to the fire. And, and of course, that fits perfectly with exactly the things we have learned from the Bible concerning the Lord's plan to leave his people on the earth in the day of judgment to um, bring about the trial of their faith and, and, and so forth. We, we've discussed it many times, and that's what um, is in view here. And their works do follow them. Now, um, in the Greek... There's a word that's in the text that's not translated here. And literally, this should read, And their works do follow with them. There's there's a Greek word that should be translated with, that is not in the King James translation, but it's in the Greek text. And what's the difference? Well, as God has been speaking of the elect and their labor in the field in getting the gospel out. And then this statement at the end of the verse says, their works do follow them. It, it makes it sound as if uh, these people are following them, which is fine, by the way. As the Apostle Paul says, be followers of me, even as I I'm a follower of the Lord, but but um, I think God would have us to know that it is actually saying, and their works do follow with them. And that's indicating something different, that as the people who uh, minister the gospel to them follow the Lord, well, they come and follow the Lord with them. And that is, they're following the Lord also. And I think that's a significant thing for us to to see and uh, to understand. Okay, let's go on to verse 14 of Revelation chapter 14. And it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now the Apostle John is being given another vision, another insight from God concerning Judgment Day, and he sees, first of all, a white cloud. Now we might think that's redundant. We we look up in the sky, and and normally we see white clouds. Although... Sometimes they can appear a little grayish. But by using the color white, or by describing the cloud as white, God is making an important point 
that he would have us to know concerning his judgment, and that is that it is a holy, righteous judgment. It's the same point that the Lord made back in Romans 2, and he makes it actually in many places in the Bible. But it says in Romans 2, 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure us up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, for something to be righteous, it must be pure, holy, without sin. And God's judgment is a just judgment, a righteous judgment. Mankind is the offender. We are the unrighteous ones. We are the sinners. We're the transgressors of his law. We're the guilty ones deserving of the wrath of God for our sins. And it's only by God's grace and mercy that those of us that have become saved were saved uh, by the, the work and faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God punished us in him. And, and that uh, should teach us that our sins, the, the child of God's, the, the one chosen by God to salvation uh, before this world began, are deserving of the wrath of God. We're guilty, and, and we're children of wrath even as others. We have offended the justice, the law of God, and the law demanded our death, but the law's demand was satisfied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the law poured out the complete wrath that our sins deserved on the Savior, our Deliverer, Christ, and that has freed us from the penalty of the law, and the law has no more can do to us. But uh, but still, sin brings wrath, and mankind has been actively sinning against God in thought, word, and deed. Remember, even before the flood, when God looked down upon the inhabitants of the world, and he saw that the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. And has that condition improved? Has mankind gotten any better since the time of the flood? No. Uh, we've uh, outwardly, the, the thoughts that were within our hearts have been coming to the surface more and more. And men are not uh, shy or afraid to speak their evil thoughts, to act upon their evil thoughts, to show forth their evil nature at all the more in our present time. And, and we know this is the nature of man. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the things of our heart in, in these latter days, in this time of the end, have been coming into view, and in an unashamed way, people are acting them out and basically shaking their fist at at God and His Word and His law, and and saying, "I don't care what your law says about Sunday. I don't care what your law says concerning 
marriage and divorce. I don't care what your law says about um, uh, homosexuality. I don't care what your law says um, concerning uh, speaking the truth or lying. And, and on point after point after point, it's not even a thought in in the minds of most people any longer. They they've just simply uh, moved God out of the picture, and yet God is actively presently now pouring out his wrath upon them, even if they're unaware of it, just as he did on the churches for 23 years when God uh, removed himself, his spirit, from the midst of the congregations and brought Satan's spirit in, and none were being saved throughout the 23-year period of the Great Tribulation. That was the heavy hand of an angry God upon the congregations, even though they didn't know it. Uh, for the most part, they were blissfully ignorant of it and continued on their merry way Sunday after Sunday, even till today. Yet, we should not think because they didn't know it, it wasn't the, the judgment of God upon them. It was. And it's the same now on the world. God isn't concerned that mankind know this it it is what he has done and he reveals what he has done to his people that's why the wise discern both time and judgment but the wicked evil men understand not judgment we read in proverbs 28:5 they uh, uh, as god said of the people of judah long ago uh, they they know not the judgment of Jehovah. And this is the nature of the natural-minded man. As God reveals a spiritual judgment, it takes spiritual eyes to see, to discern, to understand, and the natural man doesn't have it. He can perhaps perceive to a certain degree that the Bible and the things of the Bible are being spoken against him as the Pharisees uh, from time to time were able to perceive that Christ spoke a parable against them, but they don't really, they, they can't grasp what is being said in, in any kind of real way. Well, here, as, as God is uh, moving the Apostle John to write these things, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud. So the first thing we know about the cloud is it's pure, it's holy. And then we're also told that one, one sat upon the cloud like unto the Son of Man. And then it says on his head he had a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And the word to sit or sat in the Bible points to ruling. It points to ruling. Now, we, we've we learned from other Bible passages that as soon as Judgment Day began, that Satan was put down, he was deposed, and the Lord Jesus Christ began to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And likewise, here, that is further strengthened, that that teaching of the Bible is further confirmed as we read 
that one sat upon the cloud and, and the cloud would represent judgment and, and to sit means Christ, the, the Son of Man is ruling over those that he is judging. And, and again, elsewhere we're told he's ruling with a rod of iron. And one other thing that maybe we'll mention later is the word sat is uh, an incorrect translation of the tense. That This is actually a present uh, passive middle participle. And if you look in J. Green's interlinear Bible, you'll see that it's translated as sitting. Uh, and upon the cloud, one sitting like unto the Son of Man. And sitting gives the idea of a continuous action. Sat indicates something in the past that that, uh, he sat in the chair. But sitting means it's ongoing and continuous. and, and, And so the Lord is sitting. Uh, One like unto the Son of Man is sitting on the cloud. And I, I think that will be more understandable as we look into the cloud and some of the language that the Bible gives us concerning clouds. And we're not going to have time to get into that in this study. But um, please look up the word cloud in the Old Testament and New Testament. God has a, a great deal to say to inform us of concerning clouds. And I, I think as we look at this word, we want to follow the the Bible's methodology for coming to truth, and that is that God will define his own terms through comparing Scripture with Scripture. We have a word. We know, of course, what a cloud is. We just have to look up into the sky, and the cloud It is that which floats along. It may bring rain. It may block the sun for a little bit. Well, and we could get a definition from from the world, but we don't want the world's definition or our own understanding. What is God's definition of a cloud? And we are able to find uh, God's definitions when we look elsewhere other places in the Bible where it's used, and then we'll begin to see that what the Bible says a cloud means. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies. You can hear these studies Monday through Friday over PalTalk, Skype, eBible Fellowship's webcast audio, or over your phone. For more information or to hear other studies, visit www.ebiblefellowship.com. Until our next study, may the Lord's perfect will be done.